Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Seth Rodberg, and we're going to talk about Huntington's disease. Hi, Seth. Nice to meet you, and thank you for coming on the show. How are you? Nice to meet you, too, and uh, I'm doing well. I can't complain. Trying to, trying to stay warm out here in Chicago. Oh, you're in Chicago. So I've been once only, and it was in summer. I found it amazing, like amazing weather, but I've heard that winters are quite harsh, aren't they? It definitely is. I mean, growing up outside of Boston, I understand and can uh, deal with the, the cold weather, but I think it's the extra wind, which is why people call it sometimes the windy city, is uh, that wind chill makes it a little bit more colder than what I'm uh, used to back home. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so as uh, you may know, I always start by asking my guests to select a song. Uh, so what song did you choose and why? Yeah, it's always a tough one. I mean, I, I'll kind of just share before I share, before I share the actual song, uh, you know, I, I usually find a song that has like a, a good beat to it. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it tends to be like a rap song, but for, for this purpose, I, I picked Feel So Close by Calvin Harris. And I think the reason why that song always sticks to me is it is, I guess you could say a little bit of a throwback, but I, I'm a runner. And so, you know, whenever I need just that extra boost of energy, I, I can always turn to that song. And it's something just about the, the beat and the energy to that, that song that kind of keeps, keeps me going and pushes me through the end of that run. So I would say, yeah, that, I could never go wrong with that song. Um, you know, there's always just a handful of songs that I, of course, love, but that one tends to stick out the most. Okay. Yeah, and I know it's difficult to choose a song. It always <laughs> is. Um, but it's interesting. I'm, I'm a runner as well, and it, it's funny how sometimes a song can just bypass your, um, your tiredness, um and give you the the boost you need to carry on running yeah i mean i only do short short distance uh you know i i did a marathon back in 2016 new york city and it was it was amazing but i also didn't take proper care of my body uh before and after my my long runs which i'm sure you can relate to um yeah. as, as a runner it's just it's so important to take care of your body uh, and your health and make sure you're stretching and whatnot and so Yep. I uh, definitely learned the hard way, and but I'm, I'm back at it. I'm back at running, just doing a little bit shorter distance. Nice. Uh, so today we're we're talking about Huntington's disease, um, and you uh, you you share about it a lot. Um, but rather than me asking, starting with questions about it. Um, uh, I'll just let you uh, start where you want to start, and and then we'll we'll take it from there. Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, it with Huntington's disease, it was one of those unknowns in, in my family. It was something we were never aware of, even though it is a uh, genetic condition, 
And so, you know, growing up, it was definitely challenging because my, my mom was kind of showing, showing symptoms of of the disease, but we didn't know what it was. So, Mm -hmm. you know, imagine someone who had these drunk like movements who had poor balance, you know, these wobbly movements, slurred speech, right? This, this twitching and, and you don't know what that's all about. And then they got mood swings where one moment they're fine. And then the next it's, it's frustration, angry, anger, or like depression and, you know, losing energy and motivation to do much, you know, the, the memory's slowly getting worse and worse and you're not sure what's happening. And getting these misdiagnoses of, oh, she might just have major depression or bipolar disorder and being like, man, it's not something else. It has to be mm-hmm. something more than that. And so, you know, it, it took until I was in high school when we learned about it and, and how we were able to, to discover it was, you know, my, my dad, myself and a few of my other family members, we had to sit my mom down for an intervention and pretty much gave her the ultimatum of my dad and I were going to uh, pack our bags and leave uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, send her into a mental facility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my older sister was involved, but she was out in college, uh, you know, in, in warmer weather uh, out in Arizona. And so, you know, at the time, it was just like my dad and I it was just getting worse and worse, right? So you kind of have to, well, at some point in your life, put your foot down. And that was kind of when we said we got to put our foot down because this is yeah. impacting our mental health. This is impacting the way we live. And it was tough when, you know, seeing her at that mental facility because I knew right away she didn't belong. And you kind of yeah. felt, I felt guilty, right? But if we didn't do that, they wouldn't have ran all these tests and these different evaluations and discover, Oh, she actually has Huntington's disease. And so for those listening, if you may say, well, what is this condition? Um, I I may refer to it as, as HD and it's a rare neurological uh, condition that slowly deteriorates a person's physical and cognitive abilities over about 10 to 20 years. So it's like having ALS, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's all at once and there's no cure. And so each child of a parent with the disease has a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. So it's a, considered an autosomal dominant condition. And so, you know, you learn about all this, but it's a lot to process for anyone that learns about a new condition in their life. Yeah. And whether it's your own condition or a family member, it's always going to be a family diagnosis because it impacts the whole family, right? It's never an individual, uh, you know, situation. And for those that you know, whether your kid gets sick, right, you're still part of that. You're part of that journey to get them better. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they have a, a, a small, you know, ha- has a, a temperature, or has the flu or whatever the case is, a, a common cold, you're still there because you're there to help them get better. Similar to what my dad, myself, my sister, my family was there for my mom to try to just improve quality of life, help make sh- sure she felt as comfortable as possible you know, over 17 years of her battling this disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, you know, she passed away about eight years ago, uh, March of 2015. And, you know, it's challenging for sure um, because I also decided to go through genetic testing at the age of 20 
So that was about 12 years ago. I'll let the, the, the listeners do the math. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I found out I, I have the gene as well, which means there's no ifs, ands, or buts, but like I'm guaranteed to get it unless there's an effective treatment or cure to slow it down or halt it, halt the disease in its tracks. Yeah. That must have been challenging to 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 watch your mom because I I know it deteriorates over time. So how how did did you leave that from from your end? Yeah. So for me, it was I was definitely in denial when I was in high school because in high school you're you're trying to fit in with your peers, you're trying to just like feel like you belong, and then. I felt like at times I was an outsider because I didn't really have anyone who understood what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And so that was quite isolating where I was like, I'm not going to, I'm just, I was like an angry kid because I was so angry at the world of why did this happen to me? Why mm-hmm. did this happen to my family? You know, how come we deserve this? And So I was definitely like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it until going into college when I realized I was at risk of, of getting the same condition. Um, so it it was tough and I definitely felt that sense of guilt that I felt when we, when I saw my mom at the mental facility, when like, you know, I learned about this more about the condition I learned that like, man, all those arguments that my mom and I would get into or like things I just didn't understand. And it was this, this damn disease just kind of took over her life. And so I wanted to do something and put on a through and through basketball charity event help kind of raise money and awareness for the disease mm-hmm. and continue to just try to do my best to help her out. But, um, you know, one thing that many people may not realize is that I think it was, it was when I was in college. I don't know if it was winter break or holiday, you know, uh, Christmas, winter break, uh, my sophomore year, I think it was. And, you know, my mom had actually a bad fall at our at our home, where she fractured her vertebrae, and the and the, and the fall was because of Huntington's disease. Again, Matt, I, I mentioned that poor balance, right? That wobbly movement. Yeah. And she fell, but we didn't know that because we were uh, upstairs sleeping, and then just heard someone say like, "Help, help!" And we go down, and she's like, "I can't get up." And we're like, "Oh, maybe you know, maybe her legs are you know a sleep member. Like sometimes your leg kind of falls asleep, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this feels weird.'" Yeah. Um, we got her up, and then eventually, you know, bringing her to a local hospital, then to you know uh, one of the major Boston hospitals um, in the ICU, and pretty much just trying to figure out like what's going on. And it was then when they were like, "Hey, I, I don't know if your mom's or." My mom's name is, is Debbie. Like we don't know if Debbie's gonna ever be able to walk again. And uh, they were they were correct. Um, you know, she lost kind of that feeling because of where she fractured it. She kind of lost that feeling, and we tried like you know physical therapy and everything. But because she was also yeah. battling Huntington's disease, which deteriorates you know their physical body, mm-hmm. just at that time it was kind of like all right, she was more unfortunately bedridden um or had like her reclining chair that we would put her in um and so that was you know that was another very difficult moment to know that uh she wasn't able to kind of walk on her own again and whatnot but what i will say 
what I will say before we kind of get into it is with all of that that she had to deal with, that we had to deal with, she never le- she never lost her sense of humor. Um, <laughs> so she always had humor with everything. I remember we're at the hospital and they had to like put a trach in and everything. And so she like couldn't talk because of like the trach. But then when they allowed her to, to, to talk, like before they'd like, you know, close it back up, um, you know, first thing, first thing she says was like, I'm freaking hungry. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just funny. Like, you know, at the, at the time it was just like, you know, the one thing it wasn't like, Oh, Hey, Hey guys, like I'm good, but like, I'm hungry. Like, get me something to eat. Yeah. Um, so she always just had, um, her sense of humor and like still tried to stay true to herself no matter what. But with myself knowing that I tested positive, I, I never told her about it. And so that was a, another thing that was challenging because I saw myself in her, you know, as she got worse, I felt like that was a part of me that I saw in her. And so it was definitely challenging to to go visit her at the the nursing facility because of just my own kind of mindset of saying, well, wow, that, that could be me one day in that bed, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't really imagine how that feels like, but yeah, I imagine that it's tough. Um, how long did you wait? So you, you said that you, one day you, you learned that you were at risk. How long did you wait between knowing that and deciding to do the test yourself? Great question. And it's actually interesting because, you know, I, I did a, a TED talk and for the longest time I was like, oh, I learned about, you know, Huntington's disease when I was 15 years old, which is when I thought at the time my mom was officially diagnosed. But my dad came to visit me for uh, Thanksgiving last year in November of 2022 and he brought my mom's old medical records. So I was like, let me look through these because I've never seen, I've never really saw them. And I was actually 17 years old, a junior in high school, uh, not 15. And I was like, man, wow. Like, you know, 17 years old, you know, trying to, again, fit in with peers and kind of being closer to graduating. And, and this kind of su- suddenly come comes into my life. And then it was when I was a freshman in, in college and I was just literally like the next year, 18, I was like, oh, maybe I'll get, te- or I guess two years later, I should say, sorry, two years later when I was about 18, 19, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to get tested. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. Uh, I just was like, you know what, maybe it's just not the right time. I spoke with my aunt and my older sister about it, but you know, it just, it's, it's such a difficult decision to make because once you make it, you can't go back and it, it impacts the rest of your, your future, right? It it impacts how you're going to live. And, and there's many people who are at risk in the U S for Huntington's disease, about 200,000 and only about 10% go through testing because of just, there's no treatment. There's no cure. A lot of them are like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to know right now. Right. And I think that's fine. But I think what, for me, it was kind of like, I'm a planner. I wanted to know my future. And so it was when I was 20 years old, that's when I officially decided to, to go through that process on my own and, and learn uh, that I have the gene as well. 
And did you have anyone to talk to at that time? Like how, how was it to learn that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, I was, I was trying to keep it a secret from many people. Right. I mean, I told, I told a few friends, like my close friends and it was like, kept it a secret from like my friends from college. So I was like, Hey, I'm going home to have a doctor's appointment. And they're like, dude, we got spring break coming up. Like, why not? Then I'm like, Oh, I just, there's no availability then. Right. And then they go back two weeks later for my results. I was like, Oh, I'm going to go surprise my mom for a visit. Right. And yeah. in reality, I was, I was getting my results, but you know, I, I had a friend who came with me for the results. She was in the waiting room though. She wasn't actually in like the, the room when I was getting the results, which is very interesting. And it's like, you would think with doctors and, and hopefully people have learned it is like, if you're going to get results of something that life changing to make sure that they're ready with that support and resources. I mean, again, I was very fortunate to have that friend, have other friends, but man, I was 20 years old. Like yeah. I was a college kid trying to figure out life. And I was fortunate that to have that support system and, and to learn about the other support of the HD community and to connect with others in the community. But like, that's tough, right? Like, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, because if you ask anyone who has a condition, when they learn, Hey, you have x condition x disease or you have this cancer most of them will say and i guess i'll speak for my speak for myself though like i don't remember anything after that because all i'm thinking about is okay wow what do i what do i do next who do i tell how much time do i have until yeah potentially showing symptoms mm -hmm. and so if i had someone in that room they could at least tell me what the doctor said after that. i don't remember anything like yeah and so it was definitely a challenging experience. I learned a lot from it. And I do share part of that with others because I'm like, I want to make sure you don't have that experience that I went through. I want to make sure you have a genetic counselor to speak with. And, you know, you have your support system and resources, because even if you test negative, you might have survivor's guilt of, oh, well, I have a sibling at risk, right? Like, hypothetically speaking, with, with my older sister, right? If I tested mm -hmm. negative, I might be like, well, man, I hope she doesn't get it. Right. And I yeah. might feel guilty. And, and so I think that's the other thing people don't realize is it, it still weighs a toll on people because of no matter which uh, side of the coin that it lands on. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing a, an interview, similar interview with um, someone who uh, has the BRCA gene mutation. Mm -hmm. And who talked exactly about the the same problem of lack of support, lack of I mean, even if if your doctor shows empathy, it it doesn't necessarily provide what you need, and and really needing some mental health support when you have such um, such results. Uh, so yeah, I completely understand. Um, so are you, are you showing any symptoms now or, or not yet? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging yet good question because technically I'm not diagnosed, right? And people say, oh, you, you're diagnosed with Huntington's disease, but 
I'm not clinically diagnosed, right? I'm gene positive, but I'm in this like stage of a of being pre-symptomatic or what one of my friends uh, has, has said. And I, I told her, I give her credit, Stacy Hurt. She called, I think she said a previvor, right? Like I don't have it yet, but I'm guaranteed to get it, right? Unless there's something to slow it down. But here's the other thing is that there's been a lot of research as of lately and just over the years. And it's been amazing to see that and, and seeing a lot of these different pharmaceutical companies working in the space. Um, and, and we've learned that there are changes in the brain happening as long as I think 15 plus years prior to being clinically diagnosed. Okay. So, you know, as you and I are speaking, right, there's changes happening in my brain. If we looked at my brain versus your brain or versus someone else that doesn't have HD, right, you'll probably do see changes or see the difference. Yeah. And yeah. so to me, I'm like, well, how do we then change the way that we potentially treat it with clinical trials where someone like myself, who's not considered clinically diagnosed, have access to participate and take that risk of participating in a study? Because I know that I'm guaranteed to get it. I know that there's changes happening in, in my brain right now, but yet I'm not, I don't qualify for the studies. And that's something that I'm, I'm really passionate about trying to change. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Uh, so you decided to, well, actually, did you decide to become a patient advocate or did you just happen to become a patient advocate? I think, you know, you're given kind of those, the fight or flight mentality, right? You can yeah. fight back, yeah. and get more involved. You can kind of take the high road and say, I'm not ready to, to fight back. And that's okay. You don't have to like, you know, get heavily involved because you also will burn out pretty quickly, which is happens to all of us and you need a break. But I think it just kind of came, came to me one day where I was like, I want to get more involved and, and take on more leadership roles. So like, you know, I joined these uh, local and national, international patient advocacy organizations. Like there was the Huntington's Disease Society of America. I started with them, uh, which is the pr premier nonprofit for, for HD. You know, I was, I was, involved in their their massachusetts chapter president of their chapter supporting their youth president of like their national youth alliance at one point and then shifted over to the huntington's disease youth organization or hdo who support young people you know 35 and under impacted by hd uh, internationally and you know joined their board and you know wanted to continue just to to make it uh, an impact because i didn't want again anyone going through that similar experience i went through there's so many more options now right of these online communities or these social media platforms to find the right hopefully the right information but to find find the support uh, finding people who, who you can relate to the first person that i found that I, that I connected with outside of my family was actually my my uh sophomore year before i got tested someone lived down the hall for me and they're like oh my friend's coming to visit and her mom has hd and i was like wait, like what? Like there's other people. And it was just like, we connected right away because I felt like she understood me. She understood what I was going through. And she was the person who came for my results. I'll never forget that uh, to this day of, you know, how she was there for me and, and someone that I will always cherish. You know, we haven't really spoken in a while. And that's, it's nothing on either of us. It's just, you know, you grow apart from people. That's part of life. But 
uh, it was very important to have someone like that who understood it, right? Uh, understood what I was going through to kind of be there for that for that day. But yeah, I mean, I, I just I wanted to always continue to get more involved and continue to to support others who are facing challenges, facing adversity, and and really just give back to the community. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's very good of you. Um, and you, so you talked about like clinical research. So, are you aware of any ongoing research that um, focuses on HD? Yeah, I mean, I, I follow it pretty, pretty regularly. I, I have set up like Google alerts for Huntington's disease just to see what's the latest and greatest. But yeah, I'm I'm, I'm familiar with every company or every company most companies that are, are public about working in, in HD, I'm, I'm aware of. And, you know, that's, that's great, you know, to, to see that there are a handful of companies working in it. It's just more of, again, I don't qualify for any, and I'm like, I want to, I want to participate now. I want to, yeah. I want to give myself that, that chance. And, you know, I, my, my good friend BJ view and, and myself last year, uh, put together this FDA patient listening session where we spoke with the FDA. It was us and f- I think five other uh, HD advocates, speakers, sharing our stories of either being at risk or being pre-symptomatic or, or you know, showing early signs of, of HD and kind of telling them, hey, we want to participate in studies now. We want to be able to take a risk because it's our livelihood, right? If we know mm-hmm. that there's research out there, that show these changes in the brain, then why aren't we doing anything right now to, to prevent it? And, you know, we, we had an IRB approved survey that, that shared from 164 qualified responses, like, Hey, people want to take the risk. They want to participate in studies now. And it was great. And I think the FDA heard us, right. There's like 50 members of the FDA on the call, but here we are, you know, uh, in the new year and, there wasn't much guidance after. And I think that's like the frustration, frustrating part is I think FDA patient listening sessions are, are, can be a great tool and a great resource to get the conversation going. But then it's like, what's the guidance next? Like, what do you want us to do next? Actually what we told you make happen, right? We're not just telling you so that you can say, okay, here's, you know, clap, great job guys we hear you we understand it but like what are we going to do to implement change mm-hmm. and that's been a, a challenge and it's been you know something that's been in the back of my mind of okay well we can do more but what does more mean to the fda to make them actually bring change because that's what we need now is is change and research so that when there is a trial that's you know potentially like say an oral pill right where they have a subarm of people like myself who are gene positive and maybe earlier on or don't have symptoms that you can actually see, you know, say, okay, like here's the risk, right? Here's and and understanding it and that making sure that you're educating them enough because we do sign the informed consent, right? And there's, I'm sure something in that, you know, 25 to 50 page document that says, you know, that, you know, about a liability section, yeah but at the end of the day right i mean you we we can go back to you mentioned a a guest you had with the brat you know with the bracket gene you know if you know you have the bracket gene or you know that you 
that they found cancer, right? Any type of cancer, they're saying, here's options to prevent it from getting worse, right? Yeah, here's an yeah. option to at least lower your risk, your risks, right? Yeah. I mean, even if you have the BRCA gene, right, you have options to lower the risk of actually getting cancer. Mm-hmm. But yet in HD, there's nothing like that where it's like, here's, here's an option to lower your risk, right? Like, it, it just, it's, it's mind boggling to me that we, I feel like live in a society where we, we care more about reactive medicine than preventative me- medicine. I know, I know. And <laughs> I work in the industry and I think it, it yeah, it's frustrating to see that, 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 yeah, it's more of the reaction than the, the, the proactivity. Have you, have you had access to any, um, like study designs, do you know why they focus on on patients who show symptoms rather than pre-symptomatic patients? My hypothesis, right, and this is me speaking as just not a researcher, right? I'm not a scientist. I'm just an advocate trying to learn. Yeah. But I would say there could be a few different reasons. One is you know, when someone has symptoms, right, it's easier to show changes, right, to see improvements, mm-hmm. yeah. right? We can take, we'll take an easy example. Everyone, I would imagine, knows, like, you know, you take Advil or ibuprofen if you have a headache, right? Yeah. And you can see changes because it's like, oh, my headache's going away, right? But if you take it before the headache even starts, you're not going to maybe see the change or see the, the preventative of the headache. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, if someone already has symptoms, it's a lot easier to see those changes than someone that, you know, maybe has cognitive or the, you know, the behavioral symptoms of HD. It's also, it can be tough to measure, right? Because if you think about it, right, like I could drop my phone or forget an earlier conversation and immediately can blame, say, oh, this could be HD when it could just be me, right? It could just be, I drop my phone, right? Like everyone, other people who don't have HD can do similar things, yeah, but it's yeah. tough to separate out the difference. Um, I, I think there's that piece, but then it's also, again, going back to the FDA wants to see changes in, you know, clinical benefit in a timely manner, right? If, because HD is such a mm-hmm. slow progressive, you know, slowly progressing disease, yeah, it can be challenging to actually see those changes. But then I'm like, well, if you look at if you take like brain imaging, right, again, it goes back to my brain versus someone without HD's brain. You, I would imagine there's parts of the brain that will, you know, that you want to keep stable, you don't want the the levels of, of you know, neurofilament light chain or the striatum, um, which are different parts of the brain, like, you don't want those going up or down. Yeah, yeah. And, and so to me, it's it's important for us to say, okay, well, if we need to keep these stable or keep them in a certain, you know, level, then how do we look at it through brain imaging or through um, CSF fluid or, or anything else that we're already doing to say, hey, well, here's a subarm of people trying to take it and take this potential treatment to see if there are clinical benefits and someone earlier on, because if you ask any company, they, they want to treat as early as possible, right? Like that, that's the goal. They want to treat as early as possible. And so I say, well, by the time I am clinically diagnosed, it's too late for me. 
So yeah, yeah. Let me, you know, again, join now versus waiting until I'm clinically diagnosed. And then it's like, all right, well, try this out and let's see if it works. It's like, well, at what point do I want to just, you know, tell them, no, I don't want to wait. I want want to do something now. I mean, that's, that's like with anything, right? Like you're given options and it's, it's just to me, we got to make it more accessible and make it. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. Like, I know it may sound like, oh, Seth, yeah, it sounds easy. Yeah, let's just do it. I, I, science <laughs> science, and research is hard. I, I understand that. Yeah. And, and so it's more of just, you know, I feel like we have a lot of this research now. And yet it's like, well, what is that next step? Again, what is that guidance that we're, we're missing to say, well, this is what you need to do with the data to make this happen? Yeah, yeah. Um. On the positive note, I think, or I see that there's more and more um, power, well, maybe not power, but focus given to patient advocacy groups. Um, The pharma industry seems to be more open to listening, uh, which hopefully will lead to changing, but I know that it's, it's an industry that's adverse to change and it's difficult to to make things happen um but at the same time if we don't try we won't make things change so yeah yeah i mean and i would say in general you know no one likes change right i mean no one likes change is tough right it's it's like you're out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. and we need to understand that sometimes change is, is good change is good it helps with innovation it helps with bringing positive change to to make these you know ideas into reality and if it doesn't work out right because no you know no one wants to accept failure but failure helps us learn what we can do better for the next time we try something out and i I think you're right patient advocacy organizations can play a huge role uh patient advocates if they're not even associated with a nonprofit can play a huge role when it comes to giving feedback throughout drug development and understanding, you know, the importance of being involved from the protocol stage to the design stage, right. Of, Hey, this is what the company wants to do. What do you all think of it? Like, let's work together as a team. Uh, Let's stop being on the timeline of, all right, well, this is when pharma needs to do it. And let's start to say, well, what does the patient want? What's the timeline of the patient? Because they want to help patients, even caregivers, right? They want to help now. They want to be like, well, here's our timeline as as pharma, but it's like, how do we meet in the middle to make sure that it's an an equal playing field? Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, I'm impressed that you got to to talk to the FDA and... uh, (laughs) They were open and, and receptive. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you a question that could be very personal. But tell me if, you, if you'd rather not not answer. Um, I don't know what your um, what your your situation is in terms of of relationships and so on. But are you considering? Um, having children or do you have children? 
I have a dog, so I always consider my dog a child at times because yeah. uh, he's lucky he doesn't have to pay rent yet. But <laughs> uh, so it is. I think what's what is a challenge is, is with dating in general is that you don't know how someone's going to perceive when you share something like this with them, right? And so for a while, what I learned about myself was that I would share it because I was trying to push them away before that they could push me away because I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't I didn't want to be the one who was getting pushed away because of that. So, you know, over time, and this was more recently, I was like, you know what, I don't I don't feel like I need to to share it unless it comes up in conversation. Right. I'm not going to shy away from it. Like, you know, if people ask why I got involved in healthcare, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, you know, my mom had this rare disease called Huntington's disease. I'll share a little bit about it. Sometimes people know, oh, oh, I've heard about it. Like, oh, I heard it's genetic, right? At that point, like, if they say, oh, like, out of curiosity, like, have have you tested or whatnot, you know, I, I will share with it, with them, because, again, they can also just Google me. But, you know, I, I learned it's just you don't need to kind of share it right away. You can share it when you feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and trying to find someone that aligns with your values is so important. And, you know, I, I at one point it was kind of like I just want to meet people naturally. And, yeah. you know, I, I will admit having a dog makes it a lot easier. You know, you walk <laughs> your dog and everyone's like, oh, can I pet your dog? Right. Uh, yeah. And that actually kind of happened where I was walking my dog and, start talking more with uh actually my my now girlfriend and that's how I, I I met her and uh you know I shared a little bit she works in she works in healthcare and I shared a little bit about my mom but you know again she went to went to Google and said hey I loved your TED talk I was like looking back I was like did I share it with her I was like oh oh no I didn't so, <laughs> uh, but like what's awesome is that you know she she sees me for who I am as a person yeah. you know doesn't say oh he's defined by this Mm -hmm. and it just makes things so much more i I don't want to say like man it makes just things better right and it makes me feel happy that there's someone that just sees me for who i am and sees that i can goof off and but i can also you know you know hard work and and you know all these different sides of me right and when it comes to kids i mean thought about it for a while um you know i learned about the all the different family planning options but mm-hmm. i wouldn't want to have you know my own kids naturally because it, you know knowing about hd knowing you know each child has a 50 50 chance of inheriting it but also knowing that when it comes when it passes down from the father there's a higher chance of it um you know being more let's say progressive Uh, in children where there's this juvenile version of Huntington's disease, which progresses a lot faster. So there's a higher chance of that when it's passed down from the father. And so I was like, well, I don't want that. And, you know, there's IVF with pre-implementation genetic testing, but it's not my body. It's, it's the, it's the woman's, you know, body. And that's not my choice to make. Right. It's also expensive. So then I was like, well, you know, at the end of the day, maybe it's, it's fostering to, to adopt, that's an option, right? There's a lot of kids out there who that could use a, a great home. 
Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just getting more dogs. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's, it's important to know what your options are, right? And understanding yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, there's no like one size fits all. And so for me, it's, you know, for a while, it's like, yeah, I do, I do want to have children of, of some sort. But now I'm kind of like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe it's foster, adopt. Maybe it's just, you know, having a dog or having more dogs. Who knows? So that's kind of where I'm at. Okay. Thank you. I know. I know it was a, a tough question. Thank you for being open. Um, so I, I have one question. I, I like finishing on, but you yeah. may have something you want to share with uh, our listeners before. So, is there anything else you'd like to add? No. Let, let's hear the, the the question. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Great. Um, so, my question is. What is your happy place where you feel at peace? Oh, good question. Definitely, definitely in the sun. I'll say that. I mean, it's (laughs) it's definitely, I I think, you know, it's tough in the wintertime when you work also fully remote, you know, and if the sun's not out, it it can be quite, I'm not going to lie, quite depressing um, because you want to, you know, you're trying to see the sun and get that, you know, just that fresh air, right? And I'm, I'm, I get that when I when I walk my dog, but I would say my happy place could be even just is is when I'm running. Okay. Because again, I, I don't, I I have the music, right? The the Calvinair yeah. song or something else, and you know, I'm the sun is out and it helps with my mental health and it just, I feel good after every run because I feel like I'm, I'm in a better headspace. You mm-hmm. know, even if things are challenging, right. I kind of just like, you know, tell myself it's going to be okay and, and kind of clear the, clear my mind when I'm, when I'm running. So I would say running for now. I mean, I would love to continue to travel and, and try to be at <laughs> different places, but <laughs> Yeah, happy place would be when I'm out there, out there running uh, when it's when it's sunny out. Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, there's many runs where I had to kick myself to get, to open the the door and get out of the house, but then afterwards I felt so much better and ready for the day. So yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. Well, Seth. Uh, it's been extremely interesting. Uh, I've learned a lot about HD, uh, and I admire what you're doing to try to get uh, our pharma industry to to act rather than just listen. So thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you again for having me on and. Uh, au-, au revoir. <laughs> au revoir, indeed. <laughs>